This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives and interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. And when we're back, we're going to bring you the bestseller lists right before the winter holidays. So we'll talk to you soon. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ken Liu on the line. His new book is The Grace of Kings. Hey, Ken, so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about the setting for your book. Sure. Um, so the setting is something I've described as silk punk. Um, it's sort of um, uh, an extension of steampunk, if you will. Um, but mixed in with a lot of East Asian elements uh, and elements from um, seafaring cultures from the Pacific. Um, I tried to create something that's a mix of magic and technology, um, and uh, it is something that's inspired by East Asia but isn't um, a stereotypical magical China story. So what are some of the fantastical elements of the, the silk punk genre you've created? Sure. Um, so as far as magic is concerned... Um, I have a pantheon of gods um, who bicker and quarrel and act sort of like a Greek chorus over the action. Um, and what's interesting about them is that the relationship between the gods and the people um, is a little different from what you might expect. Um, so in Chinese folk religion, um, the gods are not sort of these high young beings, supreme beings who are just unapproachable. Um, they are really just sort of people like mortals um, who happen to have a little bit more power. Um, so one example I often give is for New Year's Eve, um, there's a Chinese custom of feeding the gods, the kitchen gods, uh, a lot of sticky rice cake. Um, and the idea here is that the kitchen gods would be so stuffed with the delicious treats that by the time they go up to the heavenly court to make a report on the family's doings for the past year, um, they're teeth would be stuck together and they wouldn't be able to say anything bad. Um, so that kind of, <laughs> right. So that kind of irreverent um, sort of relationship uh, is, is sort of what I try to capture here. Other fantastic elements include um, smoke crafting, um, which is a style of um, hypnosis combined with spiritual mind reading uh, using smoke. Um, and then there are um, all sorts of herbal lore um, and other kind of mystical uh, interventions by the gods in people's lives as teachers, guides, and, and so on. And, and tell us a little bit about the physical setting, the islands of Dara. Right. So one thing I wanted to do with the book is, um, as I said, I didn't want to write a magical China story because uh, I think um, magical China stories are very difficult um, given the history of 
the colonial gaze and Orientalism, um, when you invoke um, a, a magical China setting, there's a set of associations that I think get in the way of, of the story I wanted to tell. So I wanted to create a setting that's as far away from continental China as possible, uh, and I settled on a set of uh, islands in the sea. Um, by doing this, uh, because my novel is sort of a reimagining of a set of historical legends from Chinese history, it creates an interesting tension uh, because the historical events occurred in a continental uh, setting, obviously. So when you transpose it into an island setting, all sorts of things have to be rethought um, from the way military strategy needs to work to the relationship between genders to um, the way that um, characters speak and talk and the images that they use um, instead of a lot of imagery based on continental kind of uh, references, now they have to speak a lot more about the sea and the influence of the sea on their lives. So it was a really interesting challenge, and I think it uh, ended up making the story uh, far more interesting to write as well as to read. Well, let's talk about the uh, the characters uh, you, the, the, that are central to the book. You, you, uh, you have two very different ones. Can you describe them for us? Tell us about them. Sure. Um, so the two main protagonists of the story are uh, Kunigaru, who is a um, a commoner um, and somebody who really doesn't have a lot of ambition at the start of the book. He's very uh, he's much more interested in drinking and having fun with his friends as opposed to thinking about grand schemes about power. Uh, the other main character of, uh, in the book is Matazindu, uh, who is the descendant of a very illustrious line of noble generals uh, and whose family has been uh, basically uh, slaughtered uh, in a very brutal fashion uh, by the conquering emperor. Um, so both of them grow up in the newly formed um, empire, and they, they, they find themselves involved in the rebellion against the emperor. Uh, and because their personalities and histories are so different, uh, unexpectedly, uh, they become really good friends and allies uh, because they complement each other. Uh, but as they continue on their on their march to victory, um, they start to realize that the fundamental differences between the two of them um, mean that they're going to have to face off against each other in a rivalry about what is the way to make the world better. So in, in your Q&A with PW, um, which people can find on our website now, you said that this installment is more about brotherhood, and the next volume will get more into the roles of women in uh, the islands of Dara. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the first installment of the book um, is very much about the notion of brotherhood and the notion of honor. Uh, one of the interesting things about um, the Grace of Kings is that because I'm transposing and reimagining a foundational narrative from Chinese literature in a new framework, uh, in the framework of epic fantasy, a contemporary epic fantasy, um, there are a lot of uh, things that the, the novel emphasizes that tends to not be emphasized uh, in contemporary epic fantasy. So, for example, one of the ideas here is two people can be really, really close um, and, and become as close as brothers when they're in university, uh, when, they're, when they're not doing well, uh, when their circumstances are very um, low uh, and problematic. But as they become more successful, that friendship sort of frays uh, because success breeds discontent. And that's a theme that comes up over and over again 
in Chinese literature, uh, but I think it tends to be not emphasized as much in, in, in Western traditions, uh, even though it's certainly an idea that we've seen play out and we understand it uh, and, and we can empathize with the, with the concept. Um, so this story is an exploration of how that kind of story can play out in multiple levels. There are many pairs of brothers, both metaphorical and literal, in the book. And the story is really about uh, how this concept plays out, about what it means to be brothers and, and how brotherhood is a, is a contentious and difficult concept. Um, the role of women is something that I um, treat uh, with a particular kind of care because the world of Dara is, um, so overall the, the idea here is to write a series of three um, uh the, the overall idea here is to write a series of um, books that explore the concept of um, revolution and rebellion and change. Um, and so um, and so I wanted to um, make sure that there's an overall change in the world over time and not not a story that, uh, not a story that talks about a world that's static uh, and not a story about a world that returns to the status quo. So the role of women is one of the t things I want to explore over the arc of the series as a whole. Dara starts out as a place that's very patriarchal and very um, uh, hostile in some ways to the agency of women. Uh, and that's not something I shy away from or something I, I do uh, unconsciously. Um, but as the book goes on, uh, a lot of reviewers have pointed out that near the end of the book, you, you see a sense of change and a sense of revolution in the way this is done. Um, and the idea is that the revolution will continue uh, in the second book um, as we delve deeper into the role of women and how um, their roles changed and, and how revolution continues. So what led you to make that choice? Were you thinking about um, what might appeal to or, or draw in male or female readers? There's, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, in in our science fiction fantasy circles lately. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking deliberately of trying to appeal to one group of reader versus another. I think um, authors are best served to try to write books for um, everyone. Um, uh, by that, I don't mean you need to please everyone. What I mean is you need to think about all of humanity as you write a book. Um, you know, uh, men and women each make up approximately half of the population. So um, any sort of story where um, women are invisible or their 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 stories are just not told uh, is, I think, fundamentally um, a story that is lacking in some sense. So I wanted to write a story um, over the course of the series um, that does cover all of humanity and, and try to tell a story that covers the complexity um, and, uh, and difficulty of, of trying to um, create justice and, and, and creating a better world for everyone. So my goal overall is to carry through this idea of revolution and, and continuous change. I mean, in some way, it's because I'm sort of um, attached to the idea that change is the only constant in life and that you, you can't have stasis, you can't have uh, a return to a perfect golden age because that doesn't exist. Um, what you have to do is to uh, be ready to continuously revolutionize and change the world um, as you discover new 
um, areas in which uh, it's not just, uh, and it requires those who are benefiting from the existing arrangement to um, compromise and work with those who don't uh, to to create the, the world that's better for everyone. So in, in creating new worlds, authors often uh, rely on maybe historical events or, or legends of past. Um, what ones have inspired you in writing this and creating this world? Okay, so um, the the story fundamentally is a reimagining um, of the fall of the Qing Dynasty and the rise of the Han Dynasty in, in Chinese history. Um, this period of history is most famously recorded uh, in Sima Qian's records of the Grand Historian uh, through a series of uh, biographical sketches of the main characters. So that's the source text that I'm, I'm reimagining and playing with. Um, I wasn't really stuck to the history. Um, what I wanted to do, um, as I mentioned, is to try to reimagine the story and, and take it um, to into the revolutionary framework that I, wa- that I wanted to um, to to carry out, um, and so obviously I read the the original text in some depth and tried to figure out the kind of tricks that Sinatian used to sketch his characters and what sort of narrative techniques he used that were effective, and so I tried to re-implement them uh, in a way that made sense in the new world. At the same time, I also uh, am really obsessed with his history of technology and the way technology evolves and. Uh, the idea of technology as a vocabulary. Um, this is actually not original. This is uh, an idea that I got from W. Brian Arthur, who is a, a theorist, uh, an economist, but, but also a theorist of technology. Uh, and so I, when I was reimagining the world, I did a lot of research into the history of technology evolution and, and how uh, technologies um, in different domains uh, become uh, over time, more complex and more elaborate, and how combinations of uh, components uh, create new machines and new devices, and they in turn become components of yet more elaborate machines. Uh, so that's that's an idea I wanted to carry through in the book as well. So a lot of the world building centered on trying to um, make the silk punk uh, setting work with this notion of technology and technological evolution. Uh, and I wanted to Im- imbue the world um, and its economy with this very informed technology choice um, as I try to, again, carry through the idea of, of, of revolution uh, and rebellion um, and a kind of um, continuous change. And that's sort of the punk part of silk punk. Uh, it, it's not just sort of a, a random suffix throw, thrown on there to, to mean that you know there's some sort of East Asian influence here. The idea here is... This is a world uh, in constant change, uh, and, and the idea of not following the given set of rules and, and always rebelling uh, is very central to the aesthetic. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Ken Liu, author of The Grace of Kings. So, um... 
this is your first novel, but you've written a lot of short fiction, uh, often won awards for it. How did it feel to make the leap to long-form work? And, and not just a novel, but a big novel and the start of a trilogy. Uh, it was really quite a learning experience. Um, I, I think writing short stories is a lot like um, sculpting, right? Uh, in the sense where um, you can just keep the whole thing in your head um, and, and you can just keep on working at it because the, the, the overall form is in your head. Um, but writing a novel is a lot more like architecture, and there's a huge amount of management work that I didn't quite understand would be required when I started. Um, when, when you're doing a short story, if you make a world-building decision, um, it can be something that you, you just remember in your head because the draft will be done in a couple of days at the most. Um, and then you can think through its implications over 5,000 words very easily. Um, world-building decisions in novels tend to have a huge amount of implications far down the road, and small decisions you make early on need to be recorded and remembered um, so that later on they they make sense and are not just thrown away. Um, so I ended up learning to have to keep a wiki and timelines uh, and all sorts of just basic bookkeeping uh, I, I, techniques to, to keep the whole world straight in my head, um, especially the, the keeping a wiki. I think that really saved my life um, without a, a wiki to, to just basically act as a mini encyclopedia for the world. I think I would just I'd driven myself crazy um, trying to trying to get everything right. Um, so that was a huge learning experience. Um, and also in a novel, structure is so much more important. Uh, and that was something that I had to learn over many drafts. Um, the structure, um, instead of being planned from the very start, ended up being something I had to rework and rework and rework many times uh, over drafts before I got it right. Um, so probably the next time I do one of these, uh, I, I'll try to have the structure set out first um, before trying to refine it. Uh, this was not the the, um, the recommended way to do it, uh, but I think I ended up somewhere good. <laughs> so um, I, I love the idea of you keeping your own little uh, mini Wikipedia. Do you think that that's something you would ever release or make accessible to your readers? Uh, I know that with other uh, hefty epic fantasy series, like I can't read George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire books without having reference materials to hand to remind me who's that character. So um, this is something your readers might find very useful too. Um, that's a sobering thought. Um, I, I imagine <laughs> if I ever were to let people see this thing, it would have to be cleaned up a lot because right now it's full of all kinds of notes to myself um, and exclamations and sarcastic remarks that I wouldn't want anybody to see um, because because there are times where I you know make a decision and then later on find out that that is actually a really stupid idea to go back and modify the Wikipedia and as well as rewrite and I have little notes in there uh, berating myself. I, I would want to clean that up. <laughs> so you translate fiction from Chinese into English. How did you start doing this and, and what what is it that you translate? What kinds of fiction? Um, so I do a variety of things. I do some literary short stories. Um, I do a lot of science fiction and fantasy short stories. And um, finally, I've translated three novels, um, uh, science fiction novels, uh, from Chinese into English. Um, I got started on this really by accident. Uh, a friend of mine 
Stanley Chen, uh, who uh, is a really, really excellent uh, science fiction writer in China. Um, he got one of his stories translated into English, and he wanted to get it published uh, here in the U.S. And so he sent the translation draft to me uh, for me to take a look at. And I looked at it and I said, well, you know, this is not ready. Uh, there's a lot of errors in here, and it's really not well done. Uh, you know, I can try to clean it up for you a little bit if you want. Uh, and he said, sure, go ahead. Um, so I started trying to edit the translation. And then after a, just doing it for a few paragraphs, I said, you know what? It would be easier if I just retranslate from scratch because it's, it's, it's less work. Um, and so um, I did that one sort of just as a favor, uh, not having done a translation before. Uh, and then that story was published in Clark's World. Uh, it's called The Fish of Li Jiang. Um, and it ended up winning, uh, I think, the, the World um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award. Um, which you know was a huge surprise to uh, to me and, and a real honor. Um, and so I thought, you know, there's a lot of really excellent uh, science fiction fantasy being written in China, but very little of it is known in the West because translation is such a uh, such a bottleneck. Uh, and since I do have the interest and the knowledge um, as well as the context to um, curate some really excellent stories and, and try to bring them to uh, English-speaking readers, uh, I might as well do a little more of it. And, and so that ended up becoming um, a, a really fun and interesting exercise, as I've done, I think, over two dozens of, of these translated short stories by now. Um, and they've been very well received, uh, much to my relief and, and joy. Uh, and then later on, I was contacted uh, by publishers to do novels. Um, so I did three of them. Uh, and the most uh, uh, prominent one is probably The Three-Body Problem uh, by Liu Cixing, which is a Nebula nominee this year. So uh, there are about 3% of all books published in the States are uh books in translation and American audiences, American readers are, are um, a little tentative about reading, you know, as we know, uh, books in translation. Uh, you get some of those in the quote unquote, you know, quote unquote literary world, but how is it in the science fiction world? I mean, how, how do people approach, you know, when they see something that's been translated from another language, are they more open to it, eager to read it, or are they just as tentative? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I've certainly uh, received excellent reader feedback for the translations, um, and quite a few of them have made it on to your best list or um, uh, being discussed uh, widely and favorably reviewed. So um, my my perhaps naive answer is that readers seem to like them and seem very open to reading translations. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I can speak for all fandom, and I certainly don't intend to, uh, to claim to know everybody's mind. Um, but I've been very happy uh, to see these stories uh, being received by critics and readers who have reached out to me uh, with joy and interest. And a lot of people have said, you know, these stories are so interesting because they uh, really show me something uh, different. Uh, they, they, they tell me something about China. They tell me something about another way of looking at the problem that I've, I've seen done many times before in science fiction. But this one is different. It, 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 it it shows me another way of looking at the problem. Uh, the three-body problem, for example, I think a lot of readers have said it's fascinating to, to, to see um, first contact, which is a, you know, a, a trope that's being worked to death in science fiction, being handled by somebody um, from another culture uh, outside the Anglo-American uh, 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 tradition. 
and, and trying to do something with it that's very different. Um, I think one of the uh, critics in The New Yorker, um, Josh Rothman, said that what's fascinating about reading The Three-Body Problem is that you, it makes you realize how much of the science fiction we're used to is bound up with the Anglo-American history, um, the, 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 the way that we're so interesting, the idea of the frontier, the, the idea we're so interested in, uh, notions of democratic governance, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, they, they're reflected in our science fiction. But when you read something like The Three-Body Problem, it reflects a different set of historical experiences and different ways of, of thinking about the same problem. And it sort of enriches our understanding um, of, of what's possible for the genre as well as for humanity as a whole. Uh, you're also a programmer as well as a lawyer. Uh, are you currently working in both fields? Yes, I'm a litigation consultant um, in high-tech cases, uh, which means that I uh, do uh, I straddle the line between technology and the law. I sort of act as a translator, if you will, uh, between the engineers um, and the patent uh, litigators and um, and uh, other types of uh, technology-related litigation. Um, what I have to do is understand the technology and then try to craft uh, and help the lawyers craft legal arguments based on the evidence uh, revealed in the technology in the source code. Uh, and that's a really interesting um, way to think about everything because you, you realize, you know, lawyers and programmers have such different ways of looking at the world. Uh, and what I have to do is construct a framework that allows the two of them to um, talk to each other and to translate arguments that make sense technically into arguments that make sense legally. Uh, it's, it's just a really fascinating set of puzzles. So this clearly uniquely prepared you to create a new system of government and new types of technology for your novels. I certainly hope so. Uh, I, I know that um, the technology parts were among the most fun parts for me. Um, whenever I'm devising new um, tax systems, uh, I used to be a tax lawyer, actually, before I changed uh, to my current job. So I have a soft spot for tax. Um, a a thing no one else system. can say. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do think The Grace of Kings is pretty unique in, in terms of how much attention it pays to tax systems and, and hopefully how fun it makes the whole tax discussion uh, be. Um, and when I'm devising new technologies and new ways of, of uh, new machines and, and new ways of interacting between machines and people, uh, I, I just have a lot of fun. It's like playing engineer. Um, so that is that is a lot of I, I, I got a lot of joy out of it. And I hope readers do, too. And uh, speaking of interacting with people, you just came back from your book launch tour. What was that like for you? It was really cool. Um, I love meeting readers and bookstore managers uh, and just people who are really into um, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and. You know, it's it's so rare for us to, to, to have the chance to interact with such a broad cross-section of the publishing industry and, and, and readers in general. Um, I just found it to be such an enlightening experience to talk to people who love books uh, and to try to explain to them what I was doing and to see them uh, say, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. That's something I want to read. Um, it was very, very, uh, it made me very happy to, to share something that I worked on for so long and so hard. Um, to share with people who seemed really interested in what I was doing. Um, so that was a great experience, and I, I really treasure it. And, and do you get any inspiration back? Do people make suggestions that you might incorporate into your future books? 
I think so. I mean, you know, when I explain what I was doing and why I made the decisions I did, readers will sometimes say, oh, you know, here is something that's interesting. You know, what you said reminded me of this, or have you thought about this? Um, and I, I think that's great. Um, and it's, it's actually being a lot of fun as well, uh, now that the book is launched, to um, read some of the, the reader um, reactions. Uh, readers sometimes send uh, letter emails to me. Um, or would just you know chat with me on Twitter about what they thought, and it's just really great to see what people took out of it. Um, the book launch is sort of uh, bittersweet for me. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's really wonderful that I finally can share this book that I've worked on for years and years with um, everybody, but at the same time, it's sort of um, uh, there's a little bit of a sadness involved in that. Before publication, the book was mine. Uh, it was something that I I could work on endlessly if I wanted to. Um, in, in some sense. Uh, but once the book is out there, it, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to readers. Uh, and it's just, um, it, 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 it's been great to hear other people who come into this world that I created and then hear what they got out of it. Um, and it allows me to think about what I want to do in the future um, and what kind of things um, I want to put into the world to delight them some more. So do you think that after you finish this trilogy, you might stay around Dara for a while, maybe write more books or more stories there? It would depend on how I feel. You know, I have um, in my mind um, stories planned out for the three books. Uh, it's a series I'm going to do. Um, but I don't think I will end up exhausting all the ideas I have. Um, being a world of continuous revolution, it's now going to be a, a place where and then you know utopia, and, and there will be nothing to change. So um, I, I suspect that if if there is reader interest, and if it's something that I want to keep on working on, I can probably um, come up with more novellas or short stories, or even an, another novel uh, in the universe. But um, I, I, I also think that it's healthy to try to switch to working on something else. So I may not immediately go back to Dara after I finish three books. I may do something else. Uh, but I can always return to it. We've been talking with Ken Liu, and you can find his book, The Grace of Kings, in stores right now. Ken, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Sabah Tahir on the line. Her new book is An Ember in the Ashes. Hi, Sabah. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So tell us about your book, which is your debut novel. Yes, it is my debut novel. Um, An Ember in the Ashes is a young adult fantasy. It is about a girl named Laya who's fighting for her family and a soldier named Elias who is fighting for his freedom. But before he can escape or desert, he is forced to participate in a competition to choose the next martial empire. When Laya and Elias's paths cross, um, they realize that their destinies are intertwined. So tell us a little bit more about Laia, you know, your main character. She's a scholar who, as you said, is living under the, the rule of the uh, martial empire. How, how did this character come about? And tell us a little bit more about what makes her tick. Sure. You know, Laia is not a brave character. Um, she's not super courageous. She's not really um, a Triss or a Katniss Everdeen. She's actually quite a coward when the book starts. And she really has to find a way to discover her courage as the book goes on. So her brother's taken from her. She doesn't know how to get him back. She doesn't know what to do to 
um, to even begin the process of getting him back. And she has to sort of work her way through her own fear um, and conquer it in order to achieve her ultimate goal of saving him. So um, this is really interesting. You, you you have a girl rescuing a boy. That's a little atypical for the genre, at least historically. Um, what what led you to throw that in there? Well, I am um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I have two older brothers, and they're my best friends. Um, in 2007, when I initially came up with the idea for the book, um, I read a story in the Washington Post where I was a copy editor. I read a story about these women in Kashmir uh, in South Asia who lost their brothers and fathers and sons and husbands to the local militia forces. Um, the, the local forces would just sort of take them and throw them into prison, and these women would never see them again. And the story really stuck with me because, you know, I have, I have brothers, and I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to just lose them like that, to have them picked up off the street and just disappeared. Um, so that's really where the inspiration for, this, for, for Laya's storyline came from, is this idea of, okay, well, what would I do if my brothers were taken? And when I realized, you know, living in this world, I probably couldn't do that much, I, it was really frustrating for me. And so then I, I decided to sort of create a fantasy world where I had a character who faces the same issue, um, but who can find a way to fight back. Wow, that's, that's incredibly moving. Uh, were, were there any stories coming out of Kashmir of women doing the same thing, going out and getting back their brothers and fathers? No, unfortunately, there weren't. It was um, it was a really sad story. It was it, it, it was too difficult and actually too dangerous for them to even ask mm. what was happening. So they don't you know, they didn't know if their family members were in prison, if they were alive, dead, being tortured. You know, they, they have no idea. And many of them spent years in this sort of weird you know, half state where they just don't know what's happened to their family. Wow. So I can definitely understand wanting to create a story where you could, um, in some sense, give those women a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. It was, um, like I said, it came out of, it was born out of frustration. So. And, and so now tell us a little bit about Elias. And I like the way it's Laya and Elias. I, I like the way the, uh, they sound similar. Yeah, that's actually, um, that's done on purpose because there's this sort of, I heard a story a long time ago that names that sound similar indicate a linked destiny. Um, it was something that I heard when I was um, visiting um, Pakistan, which is where my parents are from. Um, and so I always, I had that story in my head. So when I created their names, I, you know, I tried to make them sound a little similar because, like I said, they're linked destiny. So, um but Elias is a, um, you know, he's a soldier. He's been, you know, he's been in this um, very, very um, violent and difficult military academy since the age of six. And he is now 20. So he has been there for 14 years training. And this training is very similar to the Spartan Agoge training um, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago was sort of made the Spartan warrior class. And, um, you know, he's under the, basically the, the boot of the commandant, who is a very, very difficult headmaster. She has no mercy, and she especially enjoys tormenting Elias for reasons that are, you know, revealed in the book. Um, and he really, he has a problem with what he's being asked to do. He knows it's wrong. Morally, he knows that the way his people, the marshals, treat other people, particularly the scholar class, is unfair. Um, but he doesn't quite know how to um, how to fight against that. He doesn't know how to fight against years of training. So a lot of his journey is is learning how to fight that fight. 
So it sounds like you're you're really working to complicate ideas of of power and what it means to be in power. Uh, you know, usually in fantasy stories, all the powerful people, especially in places of political power and military power, are men. Here you have a female commandant, and you're also writing from the perspective of the conquered as well as the conqueror. Yeah, I think um, inside outside narratives have always been my favorite, and. Just working at a newspaper where objectivity is so important and where getting multiple sides of the story is so essential to um, delivering to your reader something fair um, and something that's journalistically sound. Um, all of that had a big impact on my writing. I wanted to deliver different sides of the story because there's always more than one, right? It's never as simple as, you know, the conquerors are completely innocent and the conquerors are completely horrible. It's always more complicated than that. So I wanted to portray that. Um, how did you make the mental adjustment between writing from those two different perspectives? Well, at the post, I'm sorry, are you talking about between Lyon and Elias? Yeah, between, between Lyon and Elias and more generally um, between the scholars and the marshals. I actually, um, I wrote the draft through and then I did an entire revision that was just each person's voice separately. So I took all the Laya chapters and did them in one go. I listened to music that made me think of her. I um, looked at images that made me think of her. I read um, a few slave journals and um, did, did more research about what someone like her might go through. And then I wrote her voice mm. and her chapters. And then I did Elias separately after that. And so I took Elias's chapters that I already had and I rewrote them to sort of match his tone. So I watched like Apocalypse Now and reread Heart of Darkness and, um, and, and listened again to music that made me think of Elias and his struggles and what he went through and then rewrote his chapters that, in a way that hopefully matched his tone and his perspective. So... Did you start out intending to write a, a YA book? I did not. Um, I didn't really think about what where what the age group was. I knew I knew I wanted to do fantasy, so I knew the genre. I started out just sort of thinking, okay, I guess it'll be an adult fantasy. But um, as time went on, um, and I, you know, two things happened. One, I started um, reading some really great YA books. Um, and the second, the second thing was that the ages of the characters seemed to sort of fit better within the YA, um, YA age group as opposed to adult fantasy. And what was it about their age that, that drew you to them or that made you want to write about them at, at that age, at that time in their lives? When I was 17, when I was Lia's age, um, and even when I was 20, which is Elias's age, I was going through, you know, a lot of changes and um, becoming far more emotionally mature and really becoming the person who I am now. And I think we're always constantly developing. I mean, I hope. I hope that we continue to change and, you know, hopefully improve um, as we get older. But that, that was really a time where I made a big switch mentally in terms of, you know, who I, who I wanted to be as a person. And I wanted to kind of capture that same um, feeling in the book with these characters because they really are undergoing big changes and they're developing and they're going on these, not just these physical journeys, but these mental journeys. And I thought that was really important to to highlight in the book. You mentioned uh, knowing that you wanted to write fantasy from the start. Have you been a fantasy reader for a long time? 
Oh my goodness, yes. I love fantasy. <laughs> I like my favorite book as a little kid was um the Random House Book of Fairy Tales, which is, you know, just a kids book with these beautiful illustrations and it was it was the that book was the first sort of fantasy book I read. I think I was six or five or six when I read it. And um, it took me away from the world I was in. Um, it helped me escape. And a lot of the characters, you know, they were struggling. Um, you know, they had a lot of conflicts and they had people picking on them and they were trying to sort of fight back against that. And I was very similar as a kid. I didn't, you know, I lived in this very small town in the Mojave Desert. Um, I, I absolutely had friends there, but at the same time, I really felt like overall I didn't fit in. Um, and that, I, you know, my, my parents dealt with a lot of racism. I heard people say really terrible things to them and to me as a very young child. And I think when you grow up with that, um, it, it's just a lonely place to be as a kid. So books were my solace. You know, they were my escape. It was, it was, it was my safe place. And fantasy was, was the safest of all because it wasn't, you know, it's a completely different world. So. so do you see yourself as writing these books for um, kids who were like you, who were feeling isolated or alone and uh, needed some reassurance or a place to escape to? I certainly see the book as something that can give kids hope. Um, whether whether all they need is an escape, which I completely relate to, or whether they just want a story about people facing some really bleak circumstances, um, you know, and who find their way out of those circumstances, I think that it works for, for really any audience in that regard. And obviously a lot of adults read YA these days. Um, have you been hearing more? I guess yeah, the book's just out, but um, there are early copies out there. Have you been hearing from adults who like it too? I have. I've been hearing from both adults and teenagers. Um, I think one of the nicest things that happened was when I was at a librarian conference um, in Chicago called ALA Midwinter, um, one of the high school teachers I met gave me two letters from two of her students about what the book meant to them. And um, I actually took, <laughs> I took those letters up into my room and like read them and started crying because it was so moving that oh, something yeah. that, that I had like, Something that I had written, you know, had that effect because that was me when I was younger. I would read stories by my favorite authors and they were so inspiring and encouraging. Um, it was just really cool to have that come back around. It was like the best feeling. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sabata here, who's the author of An Ember in the Ashes. Um, so, uh, as we said, there's some early copies of your book going out. You've gotten some great reviews and quotes. PW gave you a starred review. Were you expecting Yay. that kind of advance praise? Not really. I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, I think the book is, it deals with some pretty heavy issues and some very serious themes. So I wasn't really sure how people would react to it. I mean, obviously you always hope that it'll be good, but you just never know. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised. And, and you had said this idea first came to you in 2007. So it's, it's a, about 
eight years ago now. I mean, what was the process like for you writing and for developing this? Uh, I mean, this is this is something a long time in coming. So, you know, it's great that you've been getting so much praise. What was the process like yeah. for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I initially started by just drafting and world building. I was working, like I said, I was working at the Post. It was a full-time job, and I didn't have a ton of time. So I was coming home, like, late at night. I had an evening job. So I was coming home, you know, 11.30, 12.30 at night, and then I couldn't sleep, and so I would work on the book then. And I was just feeling out the world, feeling out the characters, trying to figure out what kind of story this was. And that went on for actually a couple of years. Um, in 2009, I had my first child, and I had to, I took maternity leave, and then I had to decide, you know, do I want to go back to work or do I want to stay home with the little guy? And my husband and I, my family and I were all talking, and um, my husband really encouraged me to write the book. And he said, you know, you've been wanting to do this forever and ever. Um, just, just bite the bullet. Just do it and, and come up May. You know, hopefully, hopefully it'll work out. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I said, okay, and I decided to quit my job at the Post and write part-time. And, um, you know, it's hard to write when you have a little baby. You do it when your baby is napping and when he's, you know, chilling and when he's not demanding your attention. So it was very sort of hit and, hit and miss in terms of time, those those first few months. And then eventually I, you know, was able to find a little bit of daycare and, you know, work like a good solid between 10 and 20 hours a week. And that was really great. And I started really making progress on the book. Um, in 2012, I moved to the Bay Area. I was living in D.C. before, and I moved to the Bay Area. And that's when I really realized that, like, if I want to finish this, I'm going to have to commit some more time. So I just started finding any pockets of time that I could. Um, I started doing really heavy research. Um, I, I did interviews um, with you – know, I'm not a warrior, and one of my characters is. So I did interviews with modern-day warriors, um, and I, I poured all of that into the book, and then – in 2013, you know, I'd gone by that point. I'd gone through God, the dozens of drafts. It felt like, and I was to a place where I just wasn't sure if it was ready or not. Um, and I had a, a, a friend who's a freelance editor, and I asked her to read it, and she did. And she said, "This is it. You're you're good. You're ready. You can send it out." So um, that's the the nutshell version. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big nutshell. So um, tell us a little <laughs> bit about how the different places that you've lived, you said you grew up in the Mojave Desert, um, you lived in Washington, D.C., now you're in the Bay Area. How, how did all of those places shape the, the story? Was there any influence there? I think the biggest influence was the desert. Um, I didn't expect that when I started writing the book. It I almost didn't even realize I was writing it in the desert. It was, it was always there, but it was in the background. And then I started thinking about just how the desert affected me. You know, the desert, the Mojave Desert in particular, it's the high desert, and it is very, very beautiful. But it's a place of extremes, you know, extreme cold, extreme heat. Um, it's very stark, and it can be really scary. Um, I sometimes talk about how sometimes it feels like the desert can either really love you um, or it can really hate you. Um, and I try to incorporate that into the book. And I think that's the strong, that's the strongest um, sort of setting um, in, in, in my life that had an effect on me was, was the desert. Um, DC affected me more just in terms of 
the stories I read at work, you know, about not just what happened in Kashmir, but child soldiers and the Sudanese genocide and the wars um, in the Middle East. All of those things had a big impact on my writing. And then the Bay Area is just a wonderfully supportive. There's a wonderfully supportive artistic community here. There's tons of writers. Um, I'm in a debut group. Um, You know, we sort of band together as YA writers um, who are all debuting in 2015 and we support each other. Um, so I'm in, um, I'm, I'm in a group like that and there's tons of fellow debut writers in this area. So that's been really wonderful. So that's more, it's less, less of an impact on the book and more of an impact on my personal well-being, you know, just having other writers around. How did you, well, two questions. How did you find yourself in San Francisco after DC? And secondly, uh, tell me more about this debut group? I mean, is this something that is in other cities or is this something specific to San Francisco and how did you find them? Yeah, um, I moved to San Francisco because of my husband's job. He um, has a startup and he decided to move it to the Bay Area since this is the place for startup uh, uh, startup companies. Um, so I just was like, I'm cool, I can go wherever. So I you know, came to California. Um, the debut group is actually national and international. It's called the Fearless Fifteeners. Um, we are not actually completely fearless, but we like to think we are. And it's um, it's a tradition um, amongst the YA community. Actually, there was a 2014 debut group, a 2013 debut group, and I think it goes back a few years before that, too. And um, what happens is the first few people who sell books for a particular year, like 2015, just start a group together online and start reaching out to other writers. And then, you know, you sort of hear about it through the grapevine and um, um, join up online. And then everyone communicates through Twitter and email. Um, So I actually have friends in New York, in North Carolina. Um, One of my friends um, is actually coming to my launch from North Carolina, and I met her through a debut group. So, you know, it, you you end up meeting all these people who are going through the same thing as you, and I think that shared experience creates a bond. That's just wonderful. And um, it's when, really great. <laughs> when you, when you worked at the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just I'm just saying it's really it's really cool. Like I I, I didn't expect that that would be the case. I just I, I wrote in a vacuum. I didn't even really know that there were groups like this. But mm. I think for anybody who's writing. Um, Right now, if you're writing YA, you know, go out and find find a group of other YA authors. It's it's really wonderful to have that support. I was going to ask if you had any advice for debut authors. I mean, clearly it 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 was a bit of a long, slow road for you. Yeah, you know, my advice is really to um, one: if you are a debut author, find your debut group. There is a 2016 group, for instance. I'm pretty sure it's called the Sweet Sixteen. Um, and I'm sure there will be a 2017 group for books that are coming out then. So that's one thing. But really, um, just keep writing. I mean, I think that it's a really basic piece of advice. But when you are struggling, when your drafts are going poorly, when you think you're the worst writer in the world, when your family keeps saying, hey, how's that book coming? And you keep having to say, oh, it's not done yet. All you can do is keep going. It's like it's that famous Winston Churchill quote, which is, you know, when you're in hell, keep going. <laughs> like same, same idea for writing. When you were at the Washington Post, and I, I just like a little nuts and bolts on writing uh, question, what was your beat? And did that, how did that work either in tandem or against your creative writing? Uh, 
Um, I worked, like I said, as an editor on the international desk. So I did not write articles. Um, I'm, I almost exclusively edited them. Um, and I think when you read such great journalism on a daily basis, you do really understand the basics of creating good sentences, good structure, using good grammar. And I don't think a lot of new writers understand how important that is. It's an essential, it's a basic of, of writing. Um, and, you know, just from talking to, you know, particularly younger writers who, who are hoping to break in one day, um, I think re- reading the newspaper is actually super helpful because it is, it's sort of the best, most basic kind of writing. It gets the information across well, especially if it's a good newspaper. Um, and it teaches you, like you said, the nuts and bolts of the writing craft. And that's really important. That's, that's where I learned it, you know. Um, was was to reading news stories every single day. So uh, you already mentioned that you listen to a lot of music while you're writing your books, music for specific characters, um, and you've also created a lot of different music uh, music mixes. I think over eighty of them. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with music. Sure. Um, when I was, I think, ten or eleven, my parents cut off the cable in our house. Um, and they told my brothers and I that we needed to study more um, and stop watching as much TV. So um, our natural response was to not study more, but to find other ways of occupying ourselves. And so my way of occupying myself was to listen to the radio. And there was a classic rock and independent rock station that I got way out in the desert. And I used to listen to it nonstop on my like big crappy old stereo. Um, and, I was at that really particular age where music really starts to speak to you, I think, which was, like I said, around 11 or 12. And I just found that all these rock songs understood me, you know, far better than, than anyone else, you know, like Led Zeppelin and Pink mm-hmm. Floyd and Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana, you know, like those lyrics were, were what I was feeling at the time. So music became very much like, like books, like fantasy books. Music became a safe place for me. Um, and I just... I also played piano as a kid. I don't remember anything. Sorry, mom. But um, <laughs> I, I did play piano for 10 years and um, sort of developed a more like, I don't know, theoretical love for music because of that. So you could combine those things. And any time I was really struggling, music was the thing that I turned to to help me. Um, even when I was struggling with my writing, I would always turn to music. I have like certain songs that I'll pick. And any time I'm struggling with my writing, like I'll listen to one of, you know, maybe two or three songs, and it, it will always help me sort of get my brain going in the right direction. Wow, that sounds like a, a magical cure for writer's block. Do you want to share what those songs are in case they work for anyone else, sure. or do you think it's too personal? Sure. Um, I don't know if they're, they'll cure anyone else, but there is a um, there is a version of Another Brick in the Wall um, on Pink Floyd's live album, The Delicate Sound of Thunder. <laughs> that I really love. Um, and I think that that always gets my brain going. Um, and then I always listen to a lot of angels and airwaves. That's a sort of an independent rock band. They always get me going. Um, and then, um, uh, nine inch nails is another favorite. And it's sort of like, it's almost like it's electronica, um, and rock sort of mixed together. It's also really good workout music. If you need to get get inspired (laughs) to the gym, which I really, like I should use it for that, but I I don't. (laughs) So you said that as you were creating your characters, you listened to music uh, specifically for them. What, what, what music were you listening to? Give us an example for each of your characters. 
I had a playlist for An Ember in the Ashes that was almost 200 songs long or around 200 songs long. And all of those songs have labels on them for the different characters. Um, so Laya, for instance, there's a song called Blow Away by a, uh, a woman named A Fine Frenzy, and I listened to that for her. Um, there is a song called Ghost City by a guy named Thomas, um, Thomas Azier, and I listened to that while writing certain scenes in the book. I listened to Green Day for Elias. <laughs> um, I listened to um, Nine Inch Nails when I was writing about the Academy and all the difficult things that happened there. Um, so it was it was all over the place. Um, I have some um, I have some country music on that on that mix, and um, I have a lot of classical too, actually. So all sorts of stuff, really. So what's next? Are there sequels coming to this book, uh, or are you going to embark on different new projects? I hope that there are sequels. I don't know yet. Um, I think Penguin is really waiting to hear reader reaction um, before we move forward with anything. So I have a sequel in my head. It's really all I've been able to think about. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll get the chance to write it. And uh, if if Penguin, for some unfathomable reason, says no, have you considered self-publishing? Is that a route you've thought about taking? You know, I haven't thought about that yet. I'm sort of, I think I'm so in the weeds with book one right now that mm -hmm. I'm kind of putting off thoughts of book two or any potential sequels until book one is sort of out in the world and, and dealt with. Well, good luck with that. We certainly hope that it goes well. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Sabata here, and you can find her book, An Ember in the Ashes, in stores right now. And uh, clearly she needs you to go out and pick it up so we can find out what happens <laughs> in book two. Thank you so much for joining us, Sabata. Thank you, Rose. Take care. Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 